Hello, this is the Surviving Healthcare Podcast, and I want to introduce a good friend of mine, Christian Elliott. And as uh, Christian and I went over before our we started, these interviews where you're interviewing your friends are especially fun because you have a, a rapport going. So this guy, I had to stalk this guy to make him my friend. And that's true, isn't it, Christian? I emailed you several times before you answered. Christian wrote a, what was it, 21 reasons not to get the COVID vaccine? 18 originally, 18. and then I added 17 more later. Added 17 later. more later, but he saw the whole thing coming a long time in advance of the rest of us. What When was that published? That was published in April of 2021. Well, it was a long time before I woke up. Uh, so, uh, and then... I got to know him a little bit. I talked to him on the phone and got filled in on his insights and so on. And then he published another article, which was also very early about the central bankers and the whole the whole structure of what's going on. And it just blew me away completely. And I eventually um, uh, uh, re-edited it and stuck it in my book, Cassandra's Memo, you know, which is about uh, the events of the last year, uh, but it's still relevant today. And you can, you can look at, uh, the, uh, abridged version in my book, or you can all put a link to the original in this, in the, in the show notes here. But, uh, Christian is, uh, quite accomplished person. He doesn't have a, uh, PhD or master's or, uh, doctorate, uh, background like, uh, so many others, others, uh, who are commentating today, but he's a, very bright guy that spotted the whole thing a long time in advance and did the research and figured out what was going on. So uh, let me just do my 10 second uh, disclaimer. Uh, this is for informational purposes only use the information at your own risk. If you have a medical problem, uh, see your doctor and uh, take their advice. But, and so Christian has a couple of different things he's doing now, which he'll describe uh, one of which is uh a service where he coaches people and that's his primary uh, uh, professional activity now. And he also has a, um, a, a organization that tries to help people prepare for the freaking apocalypse. Is that a... <laughs> okay? So that's Christian, one way to describe it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, jump into this thing anywhere you want, uh, Christian. I appreciate it. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on again. It's just always fun to spend time with you. So yeah, I guess professionally, I am most easily known as a health coach. I have a fitness, nutrition, health, holistic health background in terms of, um, I collected a lot of different disciplines over the years and some personally, and then some I aggregated and had a, you know, holistic fitness and wellness business where we grew to about 40 employees had 10,000 square feet and a lot of different ways we could help. And 2017 transition to a virtual coach and coaching really is the best thing to describe what I do. I have a, you know, that health background, but I also have kind of a pastor's heart behind this. I have a, um, religion, theology degree and communications degree from undergrad. And I went to seminary and have a master's in divinity. So I'm, I'm kind of an at odd Fuller, at Fuller, which yeah, is Fuller. a very well-regarded place yeah. in Pasadena where I live. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a bit of a unicorn in terms of profession and what I do, but I just kept chasing the next challenge I saw with people as I tried to get them healthy. And eventually you end up upstream where a lot of the the emotions of being human, where the human condition becomes a very relevant piece of trying to solve the puzzle. And that fascination with complexity and being in the health arena for so long helped me see through what I originally thought was just pharma flexing its muscle and trying to show us they can manipulate us into using through using the media, scare us into taking more of their shots and my goodness, it was way bigger than what I thought. And that really just led me to say, what else do I not know? As soon as the wedge of, if they're lying to me about this, what else might they be lying to me about? Once you're willing to entertain that question and start questioning everything, uh, boy, it opens up a whole new world and it can change your perspective on a lot of things pretty quickly. So that's what ended up being those articles and how you and I met in the first place. Waking up is agonizing. That's how I describe it. And of course, I did the same thing. I was sort of shot through a cannon over the last year to 18 months. And you started before that. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it, it, it helped. There's, you know, I, I, I think back on my journey similar to how you have and I highly respect the 
paradigm shift, as you describe it, painful paradigm shift you've been through and recognizing what I used to think. And now I, in good conscience, no longer can think that way because I've learned too much. And yet you didn't let that unnerve you to such a degree that you ran from it and wouldn't entertain what it might mean. You leaned into it. And I just had the, you know, perspectives of coming from a faith perspective and understanding good and evil. I came from a skepticism about the pharmaceutical and you know medical industrial agricultural industrial process and really began to say hang on there's big systems that I didn't ask to be born into that predate me and they have an agenda and so where I was just asleep was the financial paradigm and the the pieces that got put in place there and then you see through that mechanism how they control politicians around the globe and it it doesn't take too long to piece together evil with greed, with ideology, with ego, and some level of coercion to say, oh, that's how this happened. And then it's just a matter of what do we do about it? But yeah, there's similar to you, there's been some uncomfortable moments where I think, oh, there's that pit in your stomach, like, gee whiz, I missed that too. And that has significant ramifications for how I then think about my future. I've got a lot of kids and <laughs> thinking about the world they're going to step into and realizing I don't want to just play the game of how do I beat them today? And what are they up to? I want to, I'm thinking 2030, 2040, what's the world going to be like then? And what should I be doing to prepare for that? So that's, we can get into all sorts of stuff like that, but that's a little bit about where my thinking is currently. You're in your early forties. Mid 40, I'm 46 Mid right now. 46. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I went to Florida and met Christian and his wife, and he took me to the beautiful beach in on the panhandle uh, mm -hmm. with the absolutely white uh, sands. And I, I met his friends. And so uh, we I had the best day in Florida. I spent a few weeks in Florida and made the mistake of staying in the car most of the time. But we, <laughs> we did spend a day with Christian, and it was just – it was – paradisical it looked it was wonderful so anyway go whatever, wherever you want i'll i'll prod you uh with a little sharp stick if you stop but uh just talk talk to me about what's what else about your life well so where we are with our you know professionally we we looked at as i started waking up to more the you know obvious tyranny and agenda that is what we are living through currently being a entrepreneur, I was disentangled from somebody being able to take my job. We homeschool our kids, so I didn't have to fight a school system. And yet I started looking at other places where they do have an on-off switch or where they could make life difficult for me and thought, oh, now that I understand the agenda of, hey, sucker, you're going to own nothing and you're going to like it. If that if their agenda is to take away all of our possessions and to mind control us and pretend that we will like that, then where do I need to be? Papa Bear protecting this family. And so that really, I took the question to heart of saying, where do I have a sacred duty to be in this fight for them? And that led me to, well, what skills do I have? What, Where can I be valuable in this fight? And what I stepped back and realized was, okay, I, I'm really good at complexity. I can create hope. I can create vision. I can break down an overwhelming process and find a way through it and help people find and wrestle with the personal questions that they would need to be able to answer in order to find their path through this mess. And so recognizing that's really what I'm good at. Um, my wife and I had kind of started this personal project of trying to find other places we were entangled. So the food system, energy, digital landscape, et cetera, where we hadn't fully, the way we think of it, disentangled from the matrix. So that personal project, well, along with the sacred duty question, led us to think maybe we should create this we should formalize this process so other people can go through it. And so what we ended up creating was a program we called the Sovereignty Project. And it's really just, you know, a, there's so much information out there that's duplicative of what we're doing. But our unique aspect of it is it's a fire hose of good but overwhelming information. So how do we break this down to be doable and give people their own ability to create a roadmap? So the Sovereignty Project is really a, a year-long program taking you through six different modules of the relevant aspects. And it has taught me so much about what I didn't know about all these systems and really introduced me to some amazing people. So that 
is where we've spent the bulk of our professional work or our, I guess, extra bandwidth, you could say, where my, my bread and butter is coaching. But um, this sacred duty question of where can I be helpful in the fight? I'm not a doctor, not a lawyer, but I can coach and I can wrestle with complexity. So we put this together to help the average person or the average institution that has woken up and says, we're vulnerable and we want to be part of the solution now. So I'm, I'm very solution focused and that project has taken all my creative bandwidth in the last you know year plus, and so we've got one module left. We got the food freedom module coming up uh, in next month, and so I look forward to um, having that behind us where we can really say now because it's impossible to build it and market it exceptionally well at the same time. So to be able to take it, it's it's a digital asset. It's a deployable tool that people can use as needed to do their own disentangle and take that where they will personalize it for their communities. That's, that'll be a fun next step for us to take um, along with just helping people anchor to hope and realistic hope and find their path through a lot of the carnage and specifically health carnage that we have suffered as a, at the other end of this um, globalist attempted coup here, or I guess you could say formalized out in the open coup at this point. So uh, walk us through some of the practical aspects of what you're doing and what your recommendations are. And for Sovereignty Project specifically? Yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, so what, what we did was we stepped back and, and we assessed our vulnerabilities, but then we said, okay, what are the other ones that are common? So obviously food is an important one. Health is an important aspect. We had um, finance. We can't, if we don't have sovereignty over our money, then we're really in trouble. Uh, we looked at, stepped back and said, what about people skills. What about community? What about our, our knowledge of how to do that? What about homeschooling? What about um, our ability to live off grid if necessary, or to survive shortages and outages for enough time to kind of figure our way through whatever's next? So we had a module on strategic survival. And really what I'll, I'll come back to in a second, something that really stood out to me was the history of mutual aid societies. Um, so we, we did that. We're currently in the digital independence module, which is all about really disentangling from big tech. But then trying to get our head around the monster that is technology and all the different on-off switches and where, how do we make ourselves uncensorable, uncancelable? How do we reduce our, the theft of our private information and have more comfortability moving into new technologies? It's a wild west out there when it comes to technology. And then obviously the food freedom. So local food economies, meeting your farmers and knowing where you can get, um, different, you know, there's drop locations, there's community supported agriculture, but all of that has to be undergirded with some level of knowing how to build a network and having the basic people skills. And you don't start a conversation with, Hey, we're starting an end of the world group. Would you like to join us? Like you're going to end up getting a lot of funny looks. So how do we start having these conversations and what is the most likely place we can move the fulcrum to get leverage over where we are vulnerable? And so that's really one thing I'm excited to be writing about and speaking about where I have opportunity and um, just being unattached to where it goes and doing my part um, with whatever's next to write, speak, and help people think in bigger categories. And really every little measure of sovereignty you establish, every big tech app you delete off your phone and every little step toward more personal agency feels really good. And we it, it's easy to get overwhelmed with the breadth of the ways they can come at us. And it's refreshing to step back and just say, hey, on, am I a little bit more sovereign today than I was yesterday? Am I doing my part? And we can't prepare for every possible scenario. So can we step back and say, well, what would be wise to do, even if the world was not melting down? And sure enough, there are practical things, like my wife and I are not building a defense perimeter and tripwires and you know <laughs> lasers that focus on you know intruders. That's okay. If it gets to that, I think we have different problems. And so a realism over this, but my gosh, the more you realize where we have leverage over our wannabe overlords and where we don't, and where we can strike at the roots of what they're after, rather than just keep hacking at the branches and falling for all the distracting things they're doing, that's what gets me juiced because they, they are vulnerable and they have hubris and they have no moral compass and their weakness is our opportunity if we know how to exploit it. So uh, go into the, some of the specifics you've done about your food supply and what uh, are simple things people should be thinking about and considering. 
Well, yeah, there's there's the short-term outlook on that, which is just, are you somewhat prepped for some outages and shortages? Like that's plausibly coming. We don't know. But one thing we can zoom out and appreciate is that every empire in history, every civilization has ended at some point. There's always been a, a cycle they go through. And seeing where we are in a cycle like that, it, it's unlikely that we're going to skip that. Like the, every society has its um, downturn. So what it, would it be like to kind of live through a transitionary period? And do we have some ability to handle outages and shortages? And to that, when it comes to food, then just having backstock is one prudent way to think about it. But we can't live in a world of outages and shortages. We have to have ability to reason from some sort of platforms. Okay, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Water will still run downhill. How how does food grow? How do people come together and how do they network? And so those those become the questions when you're trying to build food sovereignty. Well, who grows what and where are they? And how do we get to be friends? And how do we create solutions and perhaps extra backstock or an ability to scale things as quickly as possible, as quickly as needed in order to meet what may be a changing landscape? And truly, if you haven't been paying attention to what is it being attempted to be engineered through the food system, the fake meat fungus burgers that artificially bleed, the bugs they want us to eat, the vaccines they want to make out of lettuce, the way they want to inject mRNA into every living thing that we eat, um, it probably behooves us to get to know our farmers and figure out where we can grow things and where we can find seeds that are not poisoned by these people. And that takes work. So one of the, I mean, one practical thing anyone could do is just join the Weston A. Price Foundation and plug into a local chapter. What's that again? It's the Weston A. Price Foundation. So they have chapters all over the globe. But a, a Weston A. Price chapter is one of the best places to find your local food hubs, to find the people who know their farmers, who know where you can source really good products. And there's other places you can go. There's localharvest.org, and I think it's .com, and there's eatwild com, I believe as well. So localharvest.org, there's, there's plenty of aggregators. You can just do a search for community supported agriculture in your area. And sure enough, there's, oh, there's a garden a few blocks away and I could get a plot and every little ounce of sovereignty. If you have the option to raise chickens in your backyard, why not? We, Nina and I tried our hand at gardening last year, really just to get ourselves some world experience before we've jumped into a food freedom module. We learned a ton about what grows and what doesn't and what we're actually going to eat and what takes over and how much land you need for various types of things you might want to grow. We learned a lot about composting and the work it takes. And you can't learn some of this stuff without just rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands in the dirt sometimes. And we found, you know, a friend who can raise chickens for us or slaughter a cow. And there's that, that effort just takes work, but just having a roadmap to say, well, where would I start? And what questions do I need to begin with? And if you've got a little backstock, and then you can say, okay, now let me play the long game. Now let me figure out who do I know? Who will go to a farmer's market and say, can I come visit your farm? Can tell me about your practices. Do you guys use GMO corn? Do you inject your animals? What practices? Anybody that doesn't want you to come to their farm, that's probably not someone you want to buy from. Most good farmers are thrilled that you're that interested in their products and what they grow. So go meet them, shake their hands, walk around their fields, meet their chickens. And understanding where your food grows where it comes from gives you a, a sense of, ah, okay, I know who my people are. And, you know, a, a simple question we can entertain is where was all the food before the grocery store was invented? Like it was somewhere. Where was it? What do people do? How do they do that? What's so one of the things we'll be doing in the upcoming module is working through. It's one thing to have a backstock of food, but what do you do with 50 pounds of oats or beans or grains? Can you grind them? Can, do you know how to make bread? So there's preparation and preservation techniques that we've just lost because we outsourced everything to grocery stores and food monsters. So if we want to reclaim that, we first got to figure out where the food comes from. And then we have to figure out what do we do with it? Once we have those two basic questions framed, then we can start filling in the gaps of what we do not know yet. And from there, build a local food sovereignty, a food hub, an ability to as needed scale. And there's different companies that have already figured out scale and regenerative agriculture they just didn't have the Manhattan Project and chemical agriculture behind it, where billions of dollars are poured into one way of doing things. Well, Polyface Farms and many others have already proven, the Savory Institute, um, have figured out how to do regenerative agriculture. They just don't have the billions of dollars coming in and saying, here's the tractors, here's the, the egg mobiles, here is how you use animals to build soil, rather than just more and more chemical inputs, which is 
ruining the fertility in the soil and leaving us with dust instead of thick topsoil. We already know how to do that. We just have to meet the people and support them when they're doing it. And it's as much an education battle as anything to teach people how to do those things. So I dig into that polyphase farms. We both visited polyphase mm -hmm. farms. I was in DC. It's about two hours outside of DC mm -hmm. and you've been there twice. I have. Right. And yeah, so a, tell, tell the listeners about that. Oh, it, it, if there's such a thing as a celebrity farmer, Joel Salatin is that guy. He is a sharp as a tack, just brilliant at taking, he's a third generation farmer. So he's taken the complexity that is, biodynamic, regenerative, sustainable farming and figured out he's, he describes himself as a, as a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist lunatic. He has figured out over generations how to take and hit the capitalist part, take a regenerative model and scale it and pass it on. And so that farm is the tip of the spear, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of showing a model where so much of the homesteading movement has gotten stuck is the one, not having community, not having experience of being around other people who can get their hands dirty or who know how to speed up your learning curve. And the other part of it is that there's, they don't have the um, the frame of mind or the reference to say animals that are on a farm are staff. They're part of, they're, they're part of doing the work. If a homesteader goes out or a person trying to build soil health or, or turn a farm into a business doesn't understand that they can't do every single thing and they let the animals just, you know, have a permanent vacation, then they're not understanding that the animals are integral to, to pillage. You know, that Joel's model is birds follow herbivores. Herbivores, if you zoom out and look at the history of North America, they antelope and buffalo and everything pooped all over this continent for how long? We had thick, dense, nutrient-rich soil, and he's just taken that model and said, okay, if herbivores are part of building soil health and birds always follow them and they peck at the cow pies and then pigs come and they have a plow on the end of their nose and they aerate the soil and they turn farmland into something more and more rich the longer they interact with it, the model's there for how we can produce a whole lot of food that's deeply nutritious. Joel's got a book, Folks, This Ain't Normal, where he pulls out, he's, just, he's contrasting chemical agriculture from what historically everyone has done <laughs> chemical agriculture somewhere took over the name conventional, um, which it never deserved, but you, he's taken the model of saying how nutritious can our food be if we work with nature instead of fight it. And so in his book, folks, this ain't normal. He's got a, a graph of the nutrient profiles in a USDA egg, something you'd get at Walmart versus an egg from his farm. And it is astronomically different, now, relatively same calorie, same size, but the nutrient density in the egg that you get from his farm is off the charts. It's there's, you know, uh, folate was, it was like 40. And then the, his egg was something like 40,000 grams of folate. It's just such a stark difference between the nutritional depth. And we have lost that by outsourcing our food. And what Joel has done is shown how nutritious food can be. You eat more nutritious food. Guess what happens to your hunger signals? Your body says, Oh, I'm good. I've had enough. I don't need more calories. I'm nourished. And Simple paradigm shifts like that, that come into our understanding of food and give us the logical framing, the doability of producing our own food. Now we just need to learn from the people who've done it and reading their books. And Joel has an apprenticeship and he has an um, internship that he's done at his farm for years where he's he's been helping farmers learn. He's got a new book that we've got for our upcoming module called Polyface Micro. And it's really just all the questions he's hit by, or he's been presented with from homesteaders trying to figure out how in the world do we do this and how do we skip as many wrong turns as possible? And he continues to pump it out, put it in a curriculum, but he's got a fantastic farm that anyone can visit. There's, he doesn't have any time of day. He's transparent with everything he does and wants people to come see this is how farming can be done. Well, I, you know, in my visit, I probably spent three hours of, uh, you know, in a truck and looking around and uh, mm -hmm. looking at the chickens and everything else. And I'm 69. My body doesn't work like it did when I was 46. So it looked like an awful lot of work to me, even though the animals are supposedly doing a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. You, He has these uh, cows that uh, he he moves the 
or he has his people move the boundaries around these things mm -hmm. uh, every day, and they just chow down and and nip everything, all the grass down to nothing, mm -hmm. and then they, you know and poop all over it, and then they've got uh, uh, a new chance to do it again the next time. Mm -hmm. And the the chickens, I mean, chickens are disgusting. You've got chickens now. <laughs> I don't know. Our HOA was not a fan of chickens. No, I can imagine. Uh, we could have chickens here, but I mean even that's a lot of work. You got to like hustle the things in and out. You got to keep away from the coyotes. We have coyotes around here mm -hmm. and uh, you, you need to buy the feed. And ideally the chickens fertilize the other aspects of the farm. And mm -hmm. I mean, he had pigs and that, you know, my wife's from uh, the Caribbean and they've got pigs there. I mean, we visited pig, pig, uh, individual pig styes with a, a half a dozen pigs in them when I was mm -hmm. there. And, um, it, you know, they just get fed whatever is left from the table. They don't, uh, you know, they don't uh, make a big deal of feeding the pigs anything fancy. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it Joel's products, they don't meet conventional palates in a in a nice way. In other words, mm -hmm. we bought a couple hundred dollars worth of the steaks, mm -hmm. and we would have been better off buying the hamburger because these are really tough steaks compared to ordinary uh, uh, grass fed and uh, you know. These, these cows that are sitting in stalls and uh, chowing down in the last uh, six weeks of their lives, whatever they, whatever they do with them. Uh, but right. it, I mean, it, it was interesting, but I don't know. I, if the grid goes off entirely and you can't buy food, I, I don't know. We may just give up. I mean, it seems I, you need younger people like you to, uh, to spearhead this thing. You've got a lot of energy and you got optimism. Well, yeah, I'm not sure of either of those. I, I've got all the reasons in the world to be um, both. But to your point about the, you know, the steak tasting different, well, that's a great example of something that most people don't know, which doesn't mean the steak's not palatable, not good for you. It means there's a different preparation method that's needed in order to cook and enjoy that just the same as the steaks you're used to. We're so used to the corn-fed, fattened, overly saturated with omega-6, inflammatory, unhealthy cows. That when we get a different one, it with a, oh, this is what a healthy cow tastes like. How would I prepare that? And so um, finding those nuggets and realizing there's it, so much of life is figuring out what you want to be ignorant about, so you can be intelligent about the smart, the, the important things, and where our food comes from is a pretty big one. And as you step back and you find the aspects of of life that are most worth knowing about. Um, and you get depth of knowledge on those, it, it's hard not to be hopeful because you realize there's always a solution. There's always an opportunity for us to influence the outcome because we're operating from better principles. And so that's that and you know my family and watching them grow up. I've got five kids and one on the way. And to- to You have um, a kid on the way. I didn't hear about that. <laughs> oh my God. Yep. So we have, uh, take that, Mr. Gates. Um, but we have a um, no shortage of- reasons to want to roll up our sleeves and learn and do right by them. And homeschooling them has been such a blessing because it redeems two generations at once. It gives us an opportunity to go back and learn the things we didn't know to frame reality in such a better context. And, That's a great soundbite. Oh, I didn't think of it, but thank you. <laughs> two, two generations at once. It really does. We've, yeah. we've disentangled from, I didn't have much public schooling, but my wife did. And, and seeing this year, propaganda, never mind the lackluster education you get in those institutions, to realize what a classical education can be and to watch these kids grow up with no shortage of confidence, but to do it with humility, to understand logic and fairness and debate and history through a, a lens of question everything and history is written by the victors. And what does this then mean? And where do we find hope? That is a fun way to go through life because it it pushes us to to challenge our paradigms. And somewhere in life, I crossed over the threshold of welcoming and being excited by the idea of questioning everything rather than threatened by it and feeling like my intellect is at stake and my identity or reputation can't handle like what you've experienced. Like I can't handle the truth. No, we it it's fun. Like, cool. Like maybe viruses don't exist. Huh? Well, wouldn't that be something? different to entertain like maybe the earth is flat like there's people that really think that well they can't be completely crazy maybe they have a good question i don't know but why is that 
why can't we not even ask the questions? We grew up in a culture that didn't want us to ask questions. Well, too bad. Now I like asking questions. And sometimes you, you know, you ask a hundred crazy questions and one of them is really good. Like, oof, if that were true, that might shift my paradigm. So it's fun to be somebody who's constantly trying to learn and to do it with humility, knowing that nothing of eternal value is at stake here. Like my identity is set. I'm a child of God. Okay. Well, let's let's get curious then. That that's an easier way to have hope because I'm not threatened by learning. I'm not um, at the whims of news and world events as much as I am a kid in a candy store learning how this world works. So <laughs> you you didn't get programmed as a physician for your entire professional career. I mean, no. the whole thing is waking up has just been like flailing myself with a thorned branch or something. I mean, it's just been, it's been horrible. But well, anyway, but your boldness to like that you met, we talked about it yesterday, your boldness to write the article that basically says I wasted my whole career. How like that takes that was my most that, popular uh, essay. Right. But to do that and to be able to say with humility, I missed the boat for a few decades here, maybe several. And now I'm just I'm in I'm appreciating and I'm OK with the waking up process. It hasn't it maybe it's rocked you to your core, but it hasn't ruined you. It hasn't broken you. It's given you resolve to fight. And that's so respectable that you continue to pump out content and be in the fight because there's someone and something that matters. I love that. Well, let's get back to the cows. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. You know, here in LA, we've, we've got a place in the mid-central valley and mm -hmm. I can't figure out why, but this area, which just would be desert without the irrigation is something like 70% of the agricultural production of the United States. I mean, I would have thought that it would have been east of the Mississippi and I would have thought it was Florida, but mm -hmm. apparently your land is not as uh, rich and it, it doesn't support the agriculture as well. And I, I'm curious about your local relationships with the chicken farmers and the, and the, the, uh, you know, the other kind of, uh, you know, food producers and well, and how we could duplicate that here in California in the Central Valley. Well, it, it really isn't rocket science. You need a few things. You need people skills and an ability to, what you already have, disarmingly talk to people and make them your friend. And by you do that by being fascinated. You do that by being wanting to hear their story and, and asking intelligent questions. And with that skill in place, then you can you can ask deeper questions because you've earned some rapport about how do you, what are your farming practices like? So it, the easiest place to start is just, like I said, go to chapter leader, go do a search for grass fed beef in my area. You could do a search for real milk in my area or raw milk in my area. You could search for a community garden and then you show up and you meet the people and you shake hands and you look them in the eye. And that network at, at the Western A Price Foundation has the hubs. You, you have a chapter, you have a chapter leader. So it's, you call a meeting based on whatever your reason to get together is. That could be just to meet and see faces, but that could be to try out different preparation techniques. How do you make a grass-fed steak? Well, Farmer Joe is going to come over and show us his steak, and he's going to show us how you marinate and how you salt and et cetera, et cetera, to create a slow-cooked braise that turns this piece of what would be tough meat into the most delicious thing you've ever had. That's so it's tell us, together. Tell anecdotes about meeting your friends, your current friends and how you did it and tell, tell us what their places were like and what the farmers markets were like and so on and so forth. Well, it's so for us, we, there's two different farmers markets. There's one East of us and one West of us that about equal distance. And so we've just been to both and we go up to the farm stand and we just look at their products, ask them what they have. And I, I often like, so how much of this can I buy? If I, if they're checking the boxes of it and I give them the sense that I'm interested in more than just lunch. I'm interested in a relationship. I'm interested in in buying in bulk. And that usually gets their attention because to them, that's income. That's how they meet their needs. So um, they appreciate, I found they appreciate questions about how they raise their cows or if they have pictures, often they'll have pictures at their farm stand of here's where the chickens are and here's our cows on pasture and here's what the pigs are doing. And if you see those, compliment their picture. To, oh, that's great. And, and we asked you, can we come up and see your farm? And do you guys have a farm stand? And so a lot of them will have a, shop on their farm that you can go and you can meet them. You can walk around and you can purchase food right there. But it's it's that rapport built ahead of time that is our sovereignty deep breath where we go, okay, if I show up at their farm, they're not going to pull a shotgun out. They know who I am. And sure enough, 
Um, so going whether it's local producers who, you know, the beekeepers or the people who grow their vegetables or the people who produce the meats, the people who have the dairy stand, you just get to know them. And what we're doing is we've um, set up a chapter here for the Western Price because there wasn't one. Um, it's easier to plug into one. So we just filled out the application. We found the restaurants and farms. You go to the farmer's markets and you can find them. You do some searching online. You talk to people who live here, figure out where a lot of people aren't plugged in, but some people are. You find, oh, who's growing what? And then we can become an aggregate of here's where you can find such and such resources in your area. And we're also, we can laugh with the farmers about how much better their bell peppers look than ours or how much we underestimated the space nasturtium would take up. And why did we even think we were going to eat flowers? And the the things that just make you human are how you build a community. And then do you want to have a get together where every farmer gets to present what they do? Or do you have a cooking class get together? Do you have a food preservation? Do you have a backstock you know, how do you store food? Anything that is relevant to what skills you don't know. And you can almost create a spreadsheet of here's who sells what, here's what skills they have. How do we pool this knowledge and benefit more people? That's how we're approaching it. Before we go into the next topic, I, I'm just going to remind the listeners of your website. It's Is it thesovereignityproject.com? Is that it? So, well, so our, our main business is True Whole Human. That's the name of our business. So True, True Whole, Whole Human. Human. W-H-O-L-T-R-U-E-W-H-O-L-E-H-U-M-A-N.com. Right. That's our main business. So that's where our coaching business is. So the Sovereignty Project, there's the banner on that page for it, but you could just go straight there by going to truewholehuman.com slash sovereignty. And that's where you can see the way we've laid out the Sovereignty Project and where we are in the process. And um, I'll, I'll have a lot more to say about it when it's completed. So we're building it in real time with the people going through it with us. We don't have time to go through all the different things, but I think there were five different modules. And the next one, six. I think we can six yeah. talk about was the finances, but just run over the list of those uh, modules. So we've got health and healing is a big one. So how do you disentangle from the medical system? How do you have confidence you can actually meet your own health needs? And, and what we simplify health down to unburden and empower. What are the things that burden us? How do we jettison those and how do we find more and more things that empower us that's really about we talk about fasting we talk about plenty of other cool modalities there and we so the next one was financial stability and we dove into all things understanding the banking system and then when it was debt and taxes it was um where do you like reimagining investing and starting a small business like what would you need to do to have that level of financial stability um then we got into strategic survival which was a month of off-grid living it was building a mutual aid society and uh, we even got, you know, exercise and self-defense in there. Um, then we switched to digital independence, which is a big one that took a lot of, um, that, that's probably the most complicated and the one that will the most easily get dated because there's so much constantly changing. Now uh, we had a home and community module, which that was about basic people skills. That was about building, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of how do we build community? How do we make friends? And we had homeschooling in there. We had home and family rhythms and we had activism in that module. And then, um, the next one coming up is the food freedom. And so that'll be about hunt fish forage. That will be about how do we uh, build a food network and how do we do preservation and preparation of, of the foods that we then find. So it's a monster of a project. And, there's 19 tracks and it would probably take us it, it, on the, it'll probably take us two years really to do the work, to go through the whole thing personally. And that, that to me is about a reasonable, if you really want to establish sovereignty and just exhale that you have as best as possible, escape the clutches of the globalist control grid. And you are building more and more community that's resilient and pushing yourself further away from whatever they're going to throw at us. That was the intent with the project. So that's the high level look at it. It's a lot of bandwidth. Um, explain about your ideas about money, because that seems to be the point of their spear to destroy mm -hmm. our money uh, supply and to stop us communicating economically with each other by inflating the currency. I mean, it, they're the greatest financial criminals in history uh, or the worst financial criminals in history at the Fed and these central banks. And they're they're aggressively attacking us. So explain a little bit about that and what your uh, projected solutions are. Yeah, well, so that was the one that I had to do the most study to get my head around how there's, there's as Catherine Austin Fitz puts it, there's the real economy, and then there's the Disneyland economy that the rest of us live in. There's the people who run the monetary system, and they distract us in their own words. There's a fantastic quote I put in my 
uh, COVID and central banking article that you mentioned that by Norman Montague, and it kind of, you know, they talk about the globalist takeover. This is from 1924. The work we've been doing so hard to take over the world, and we're finally getting close. And one of the things we have to do is continue to distract the populace with questions of no importance. And essentially what he's saying is all of the social issues that we fight over, in their mind, we use the political party two-party system process as a intentional tool of distraction to keep you from focusing on the one weakness that we have, which is our ability to control currency. They don't, that's the last thing they want us focused on. As Henry Ford said, if, if people knew what was going on, how the banking system works, there'd be a revolt before tomorrow morning. We don't understand the monetary system that we're born into. And it's a model that's been used multiple times through history. Every single time it's ever been used, it has imploded. It's called central banking. It's the idea that the super smart people somewhere know every nuance of every situation and they can centrally plan what we're going to do. But one of the Rothschild sons said, give me control of the economics of a country and I don't care who makes the laws. I, I, they're, the people who understand it are just used to getting favors and the other people there's not enough of them to wake anybody up. So their lever of power is their ability to dictate to us an answer to the question, what is money? And as soon as we break up with the idea that only sovereign governments are allowed to create money and tell us what we can use to transact, and we say, well, shoot, money is just whatever you and I say it is. It could be cows. It could be blueberries. It could be seashells. It could be gold. It could be any number of things. But their ability to make currency out of nothing to control how much is it, imagine trying to store your life savings in arcade tokens or frequent flyer miles right anybody can at any point inflate that away and create more of them or tell you they're not worth anything ironically that's the system we have we have we live in a system of arcade tokens where the people at the top can make money and take it away the fed giveth and the fed taketh away whatever way they want to and it's a much deeper rabbit hole to understand the global mechanisms of power. But the short version of it is central banking is a model of controlling the currency. The more units you make, the more you cause inflation. That's what inflation used to be defined as. Inflation is simply the process of stealing via making your money less valuable. You have to spend more of it. It's a way to steal from you and keep you under their thumb. And that model has been, it was perfected by the Rothschilds family and others who created the Bank for International Settlements, which is its own country. It is beholden to no one. It has its own police force. It has its own flag. And in, in Switzerland. In Switzerland. You've seen yes. the photographs of that building. Yeah, I mean, it kind of looks like a boot. Yeah. It looks like a boot. It's a reference to 1984. Yeah. And it is as dystopian as you can imagine. But that hub, that is the hub of all the spokes of the central banks around the world. There's 63 or so of them, I think, that all launder money through them. So since no government can touch it, it is a, it is own country and it's sovereign and has immunity from persecution from any laws. Well, shoot, all we need to do is plug our central bank into theirs and we can launder money around the globe. Um, there's a fantastic article by- And Corey it's all Lynn. privately owned. It's all, all privately these banks owned. are privately right. owned. So they're, Federal... they're the psychopaths who own these things. Correct. It, yeah, they're they, not owned by the U.S. government in, right. in the case of the Fed. Anyway, I just had to interject that. Go ahead. No, you're right. The, the Federal Reserve is a cleverly misnamed organization. It's not federal. It's privately owned. And there are no reserves. It's just ones and zeros. And somebody gets to decide how many to add and take away and um, control a nation's wealth, a nation's labor, our store of value based on whatever they want to do. And, oh, our friends need money. We'll just give them some. They can buy things. And what they, the brilliance, the diabolical brilliance of what they've done is create an immunity framework through which in the, after World War II, we had an executive order that basically, or a, a law passed that gave the president the ability to sign executive orders and give immunity to whatever organization, whatever company the president so chooses. And so we've got this vast cesspool of totally immune organizations, NGOs, whatever companies they want to prop up that are above the level of governments. They can't be held liable for any of the carnage they cause. And that hub of central bank fiat money, which just means I can decide there's money because I told you so, not because I did anything to earn it. I just, if I want to take more of your stuff, I just print some dollars and you have to take it. That's what the, the US has become the reserve currency and become the global bully because of that one aspect. And so because we have been stuck in that system, because they can launder money, it, we live in an invisible economy where that that's the real economy. That's where money just pops up. That's how you have an FTX where money gets sent to Ukraine and then somehow it ends up in the democratic 
candidates' pockets funding their election campaign. Like there, there's so much laundering. And es- according to the Corey Lynn article, it's estimated that <laughs> shockingly, 80% of the money that we have in the US is unconstitutionally spent. Like that is a very difficult pill to swallow. And of course, they want us distracted with questions of no importance and not focus on the fact that that is what runs the world. And as soon as we start hacking at the roots of this, rather than the branches of LGBT and abortion and on and on and on through the things they want us to argue about, and instead we turn our focus on them and blowing up their ability to control us with currency, we won't change this game because they can just pay off every politician and every Department of Justice and CIA and FBI and this little incestuous group that loves to control everything that gets their kicks on an insatiable need for more power that and some of them have an ideology of the most uh, disgusting depraved things humans can do to each other but they're lost sick horny atheistic aging transhumanists a large portion of them when we can accept that and not run from it and not say come on well we can avoid it to our own detriment or we can face it and say what would it take to actually choke them of the one power they have and that's the control of the money we we blow up that most of what we're dealing with cannot continue at certainly at the scale it's been continued. So that that's what some of the revelations that we packed into the financial stability module. We have to be clear on who we're fighting and what's a distraction and what's not. Um, taxes is another big one. They started the IRS the same year as the Federal Reserve. How in the Gosh, world? That's quite a coincidence. Yeah. How in the world did we exist as a country and fund anything if we didn't have the IRS? Huh? So it, it you go down that rabbit hole of why the IRS is needed to create the illusion that we are what fund the government. No, it's just people who can manipulate currency any way they want and launder it around the globe however they want. Once that clicks and you see the IRS is a ruse, <laughs> huh, that's just, it's another control mechanism of stealing our wealth. If God needs 10%, why in the world does the government need way more than that? Right? And what are they spending it on? If 80% of it, if, she's, if Corlin's anywhere near right, if it's only half of what we're spending is unconstitutional. My gosh, no wonder Henry Ford said there would be a revolt if we figured that out. That's the real attack vector. And that's their one weakness. And we have options to slowly disentangle from that. So I, I'm uh, I, I, I'm trying, I'd like to you to go back into the roots a little bit and a little more detail about okay. the currencies that cannot be inflated, right? I mean, sure. Yeah, go ahead. And okay. th- that's the problem is they will just print money until everybody has nothing. And the inflation is the financial tower of Babel for the listeners. The, it means we can't communicate with each other because the currency is worth nothing. And there are many examples in history and it's occurring now in the United States where at the beginning, we're at the edge of a cliff of it mm-hmm. uh, because of the irresponsibility with which our currency has been treated. It's the most stable currency in history. And it's, I don't think it's going to last another three or four years, but I mean, who knows? I'm amazed that things have done as well as they've done to date. Right. Um, but go ahead and tell the listeners the alternate currencies that would work and the the problems with using them in, well, in the legal terms. Yeah. So there's, if, if we can zoom out and look at history as, as instructive, we can say that humans have been interacting and exchanging their value in all sorts of different ways. We just needed a medium from which to do that. So animals have been that in history. Um, Seashells were at that. Certain rocks that were hard to move were currency. And gold and silver have been the ones that have risen, or precious metals more broadly, have been the things that have risen to kind of, we just all generally accept that this is valuable and I'll exchange it for whatever you've got. Rather than I, it's, it's got challenges to it, but precious metals has a, legitimate place in um, a a currency conversation. And for some people, that is the only way and that's the best way. And um, there there are two other options I think are are worthwhile. But with regard to inflation, why gold has been a, we've viewed it as money for as long as, you know, 5,000 years, whatever it is, is because it's so scarce. It's, you can't chemically reproduce it and it's really hard to get it out. So it does inflate, but it's so modestly that nobody can come in and just, Make a bunch of gold out of nothing and then buy all your stuff. Two percent right? a year is what's mined. Right. Out of the so whole it's, it's your point. Perfect. It's it's really hard to inflate gold. 
And historically, that has been, that's why central banks have vaults full of gold, is we have to back our currency by something of value that people will agree, yep, I can exchange this piece of paper for that. Well, we don't do that with fiat currencies anymore. It's just money because the government decided to call it money. So gold and silver or precious metals is one known tool. There's issues with transport and how much of it can you store and are you at risk for theft if somebody finds you moving? Like there's there's that's the reason we have armored cars. So it does have great monetary value. And I would say is a great way to think about an alternate savings plan. It's never going to be worthless. And if we have small divisible amounts of it that we can exchange, that is a great way to have currency and to have a medium of exchange or a place to store up value that we have created um, as we provide goods and services to the market. Um, another one would just be, it, it sounds like an outside the box idea, but creating our own paper currency. There's ironically, there's no law against that. There's a great example of that. Paul Glover started an, a currency in Ithaca, New York called Hours. And, and an hour was just equivalent to $10. And so he printed up and he spent years building a network about a 20 mile radius from the center of Ithaca, creating a currency that had different denominations, a 15 minute note and an hour long note, two hour note. And that became a way that the local businesses could transact and they didn't have to do it in fiat dollars. That There's definitely challenges with that model because you have to then, how do you decide when you can print more and how do people exchange value to get into the network and who manages it and how do you know it's not being counterfeited? And for a currency, my perspective currently is for a currency like that to work, it would have to mostly be local. But we had like 3,100 currencies in this country before the depression. We, there was currencies everywhere. And that's how local counties exchange their value. I went to the local, local coin shop here. And sure enough, there's a Panama City note sitting there in the display case. I'm like, sheesh, this is an erased history where local areas had figured out how to exchange their value, how to create a modestly resilient, difficult to counterfeit currency in the form of paper backed by something that could be exchanged for value. And so it's not like humans have never worked to solve this problem. We have. But it has its challenges as well, because you know, paper is easy to lose and paper is easy to duplicate or easier. And you have somebody has to do the printing and control that. And so that's a, a plausible option of the ones we have. And I think in a very in a hyper local situation, that could be brilliant. And the more of us do that, if you have a let's say you have a church and you have a it's a decent sized church, you have a good cross section of businesses and need, and you can agree amongst yourselves to create a currency that and you trust each other. There you go. You've already started doing that. You can get your church or your organization or your, if I, you know, on a larger level, your city or state to create a depository where there's some level of being able to protect these assets. That is a fantastic way. If, if every state followed the lead of North Dakota and we had our own state banks, we wouldn't need the Fed. We'd have our own sovereign state currencies that we could use and blow up their control of the money because it couldn't just pay off everyone. We, no, we're good. We can transact without you and we don't need your currencies. They have robbed that from us, the first part of the 1900s, and it's on us to get it back. So that's one, that's the second way we could do it would be creating a paper currency. The challenge you have with that is, or the way where the government can get you in a pickle, you can't make it look anything like a Federal Reserve note or a US currency. It can't be anything close to being conceived as a counterfeit for that. Um, they still want you to pay taxes. So if you're exchanging in something, just like you would any other form of cash, they would want you to still pay your taxes in that current, in their currency, their preferred, this is how you pay taxes. And the other one would be just that you um, don't refuse to let people pay for things in whatever the current currency is, in this case, the US dollar. As long as you don't turn that down for your services, you're good. So it's just up to us to think, what networks would we want to build? But that Ithaca Powers currency was going for a long time and made a, you know, they, they transacted millions of dollars worth of that currency. So the model's there. We just have to roll up our sleeves and figure out how to do it. Um, the third one, which is speculative, it's a wild card, but it is Bitcoin. And the arena that steps into is it's solved some of the problems of, of scarcity because you can't be inflated. There's only ever going to be 21 million units. It has solved the um, need for a third party to be in the middle of the transaction to back something up. It is a, it, it's more technology than we have time to get into, but it is a essentially a sovereign technology that nobody has an on off switch for. There's that, that where the blockchain came from, the idea of having distributed ledgers where to take out the Bitcoin network, you'd have to take out all of them because the ledger is spread out all over the globe and roughly 15,000 nodes 
good luck getting rid biggest of all computer that. Net, biggest computer network in history. I mean, there's, there's some that are the other blockchains that are coming up and similar to inflation or pandemic or vaccine or um, recession, it, blockchain is a term they're trying to hijack and redefine. So we think you mean this with blockchain and we're going to actually have a blockchain that we control. So it's on us to be aware of the way they can manipulate language to tell us that, yeah, blockchain is the way to go. And if the Fed is creating blockchain, I want nothing to do with their blockchain. I don't trust them any further than I can throw them. But the the Bitcoin invention, when you understand the problem it was attempting to solve, and it was just an experiment, let's see if this works, but here is a software that runs on its own that is impenetrable in sense because there's so many nodes running the network and it, it, the code can't be changed. Nobody can inflate it. And if those things are true, and it, do your due diligence on it, do not take my word for it. Look into it and question everything I'm telling you and see if you can, um, if you come to the conclusion that I have, like it, it, the technology lives up to the hype. Will it survive the expected attempts to take it down? Time will tell. But I think it'd be really difficult to take it down. And it is growing in popularity way faster than any central bank digital currency that's being attempted to replace it. And Sure enough, the, the central bank digital currencies are getting a lot of setbacks and, and they have so many challenges to implementation. It really is a race to see if, if can, could Bitcoin actually do what it is promised to do or will it go the way of the dodo bird? We don't know. So put it in the speculative category, but it is a way to digitally transact without somebody being able to turn you off. And it has a level of needed transparency that anybody can go check the whole network and... Um, to be able to use digital ways to transact is offers solutions or options that are getting around some of the challenges of paper currency or of using metals to to transact with. But those are really the three options that I see as viable. And I would want to put two of three of them into action, depending on what way I'm thinking of, because I, I don't want all my eggs in one basket. And I don't want something where um, I'm stuck with one. And I, I if I had the other, I could use it. So that's that's how I'm thinking about it. But it'll it'll take a, a more Paul Glovers to get those things organized to show up with the solutions and the framework for how to practically implement them. But there are a ton of people doing that work right now. So we're not well, that's encouraging. <laughs> that's encouraging. So many of them. There's a lady who went across Africa, four different countries last year, and just helped set up networks. And Nigeria's uptake on their CBDCs is like two percent and Bitcoin's exploding. Like and oh. it's illegal. It's illegal in Nigeria, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. illegal in China, and it's one of the yeah. biggest places. So twenty percent of the mining is now is still in China, despite yeah. the fact that it being illegal. Yeah, but to understand that, you've got to read a little bit about Bitcoin, right? And that, that's what took me months to understand. Its international settlements are bigger than Fedwire, which is the wiring system that the U.S. uses to transport money around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing is about. 325 or 350 billion uh total bitcoin mm -hmm. gold is uh is uh what what is it is 10 billion is that it yeah I, i'm mixing up my b no it's gold is 10 trillion right roughly yeah, so the bitcoin was a trillion at one point and it uh, declined in value it, it's uh it's very volatile the yeah. Total stocks, just in very very crude terms, are a hundred trillion, uh, and you know the real estate is whatever it is, twenty trillion, or you know the whole world. So yeah, markets, it's yeah. it's not three orders of magnitude smaller now. It's 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 smaller, uh, but um, if you know it has the potential to grow, hopefully. Yeah, and that's the central banker's worst fear is that that would actually become a currency that they don't control anymore. They can't inflate it. Well, shoot. Their whole MO is control. That's what they love. For whatever reason, the psychopaths, there's a, you know, whatever percent of the population, they tend to always find each other and they tend to get together and plot things and figure out how to take over. And we've reached a really big pimple right now that's about to pop, right? The, this one's grown to a head and here we are. The word is seniorage. Is that senior? Seniorage, is, yeah. yeah. Seniorage. Yeah. And that means uh, stealing money by inflating the currency. And, you know, the the controllers do that. So, yeah. uh, it, well, Christian, I think we're about out of time, but I'm tremendously grateful. This is one of our best episodes so far. And uh, again, it's truewholehuman.com, right? Correct. And you can read my abridge, abridgment of uh, Christian's ideas or his basic ideas a year ago in 
Cassandra's memo, which mm -hmm. is still censored off of Amazon, but I'm arranging a way for uh, for you to to get it published and so on. Um, right on. Any other? Uh, and you know, I'd love to have you back. We've we've covered, I think, two of your six areas. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, if you're um, if you're interested, I'd love to have you back in a month or two. No, that'd be fun. Yeah. One other place people can find me or, or find the uh, articles that you mentioned, the 18 reasons I won't be taking the COVID injection or the that article about COVID and central banking. That one's actually called What's Really Keeping COVID Going and How We Stop It. You can find those articles or, or more about what I write at deconstructingconventional.com. That's your website. That's, that's where I, my blog is. That's where I host a lot of what I write about. Nice. Well, I thank you for everything you're doing. And, uh, we'll, I think, uh, I'm going to come back to Florida and have an, and visit you again Yeah, buddy. and hang out on Do the it. beach a little That'll bit. Be fun. <laughs> I got to get a tan like that tan. Look at how white I am. And I live in Southern California. Whew, that's embarrassing, Robert. We'll fix that. Very embarrassing. All right. <laughs> well, th thanks again. I really you're appreciate welcome. it, Christian. Thanks okay. for having me. Bye.